So what's happening tomorrow, December the 6th, 2016? What's going on tomorrow? Oh, tomorrow, yeah. Tomorrow is, uh, tomorrow is day four of, uh, I guess I call it pre-screening. Um, and then ultimately, uh, the first day of treatment for something called repetitive repetitive transcranial stimulation. Wow. Yeah. What is that exactly? Okay, so I'm Jamie Dew, and this is a show of strength. Hey, it's Jamie, and welcome to a show of strength. That sound you can hear, that buzzing, beeping, clicking sound, that's the sound of science. That's the sound of research. That's the sound of hope emanating from the Temerty Center for Therapeutic Brain Intervention on the main campus of CAMH here in Toronto, Ontario. Late last year, I had the opportunity to meet with two of the people responsible for some of the research going on at the Temerty Center, Dr. Colin Hocko and Dr. Yulia Nienichka, who we'll call Dr. K from this point on. Before we jump in to meet Dr. Nikolova and learn about her journey, I'd like to say a special thanks to today's sponsor, Try Tie Tonight. Ready for the party on Saturday? I really don't want to cook for our entire group of friends again. Why don't we order in? Oh, great idea. I could really go for some pizza. How about Thai food? Let's bring a taste of Thailand right to us with Try Thai Tonight. Um, okay. Try Thai Tonight offers an exotic four-course Thai dinner prepared right in our own kitchen by Chef Jean from Thailand. You mean an authentic Thai chef? Chef Jean cooks up some of the most authentic and delicious Thai food available in Southern Ontario. She even offers cooking demonstrations for those eager to release their inner chef. How do you know all of this? Chef Jean is all over Facebook. We can book right now by visiting her website at trytietonight.com and bring the taste of Thailand right into our kitchen. So that's a no for pizza. Experience the exotic and delectable flavors of Thai cuisine with Try Thai Tonight. With in-home dining, cooking demonstrations, and catering options available, visit trytietonight.com to book your next mouth-watering meal. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Yulia Nianichka, <laughs> Dr. K. Uh, I'm wondering if you can just take us right back to the start and um, tell us about your journey. My journey has been very weird. I came from <laughs> Ukraine as an immigrant uh, 10 years ago. I was trained as a psychiatrist in Ukraine. I worked as a psychiatrist for over a decade at this point. Um, I did master's in social work here at UFT. 
and then I went to do my PhD in public health with UFT as well. I did a couple of clinical fellowships at KMH specializing in eating disorders and then in brain stimulation. And that's how I ended up being staff psychiatrist at KMH. So my main interest probably was always around mental health, obviously, that, that's self-explanatory, and more so about complexity and treatment resistance. So looking into populations where not a lot of treatment is available or none of treatment options are feasible or effective and looking into some uh, alternatives which can be helpful for people with severe conditions. So when you say, um, are, are you speaking to like geographic regions at that point or like w when you say um, areas that I, I didn't quite understand what you meant by uh, areas where they don't have, uh, do you mean access to treatment or where treatment isn't working? Treatment isn't working. Oh, okay. Yeah. I totally Sometimes, sorry. well, access is important, of course. So this is also a part, can be part why actually treatment is not really working. Uh, and at that point, it may actually result in severe condition, but more so where treatments, conventional treatments or first line, second line treatments do not work. So anymore. pharmaceuticals or... Pharmaceuticals or psychotherapeutic modalities or combination of both or numerous combinations and numerous augmentations when people tried 7, 11, 15 trials and nothing is working. And right. of course, at that point, person will be very hopeless um, and depressed because nothing is really working. So people lose hope. That's probably what we do. We give people hope back. And that's probably why I work here. Wouldn't it be great if we could all go to work knowing that potentially we're providing hope to people by doing what we're doing? Yeah, I think so. I think this is the most important part, how this team is very different because people are very passionate about what they're doing. It's a combination of different um, fields in medicine and psychiatry, in engineering, in mechanical engineering. Like you tend to see different people from different backgrounds and then they all come together to develop something amazing which actually can change a person's life. So lots of collaboration. A lot of collaboration. Wow. So yeah. you get to meet some very interesting people. Yeah. And you're, you're th the whole function of what you guys are doing is thinking out of the box. Exactly. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is all really cool to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And you do this every day. Exactly. <laughs> but this is why I'm here because it's so exciting. It's never boring. That's for sure. I bet. It can be challenging, but it's never boring. And it's always something new. And that's what I like as well. Like it keeps you on your toes because it changes so much. And and you you need that kind of validation to a certain degree because like you said, when you're seeing people that, um, you know, maybe have tried 13 or 14 different things, you're often seeing clients or patients that, you know, like are at the you know nearing the the bottom of their their hope yes yeah exactly so it's nice that you get to see results as well right and a lot of pe people may come and say okay you're my last resort not like you like me but i mean temerity or brain stimulation i tried everything and nothing is working and nothing gonna ever change and then when you can actually have a luxury to observe the change and you can see how a person it's a different, it's completely different people when people are not depressed. And you can see the biological component in that. 
So let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the, um, the, the various treatment options available at the Temerty Center. Um, I'm guessing there are, there, well, there's definitely our team as I've been through that here. Yes. Um, so that is repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation therapy. Yep, that's correct. Yes. Um, so I want to dig, dig a little bit deeper on mm -hmm. what exactly the heck that is. I've been through it, but you know, what are they doing when they're putting that thing on my head? Good question. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's a magnetic field. It's okay. a stimulation of particular areas of the brain, depending on protocols, depending on condition, depending on what target we want to uh, to reach and what kind of symptoms we want to change. The protocols differ across the studies. Magnetic field is very interesting field. Uh, it, it has an ability to modulate how our brain is wired. It's sort of like um, software reset okay. type of thing. Well, it's, it's very simplistic, of course, but it works on several levels in the brain. First of all, it changes oxygenation in the brain, which is very simple, like very simple way of changing our brain functioning. Also, it changes uh, neuroendocrinology of the brain, and it changes how neurotransmitters are absorbed and released in neurons. If we talk about medications, usually medication, okay, maybe they work on one to two boxes, release of neurotransmitters or transportation of them. Okay. If we talk about brain stimulation interventions, all of them, non-seizure and seizure-induced, they do work on several levels. So they tick several other boxes, which suggests that they may have better efficacy compared to medication options only. And that's exactly what has been shown in the literature, that TMS has better efficacy compared to medications. Okay, so I've heard you say TMS. I went through RTMS, right? RTMS is just a protocol. Okay. It's a repetitive, which means that you're getting a lot of pulses and then you have a repetition. At the modality, it's called transcranial magnetic brain stimulation, okay. which can be very different. You can have ITBS when it's an interrupted pulse. You can uh, have continuous TBS, which is CTBS, when the pulse is the same and it's more so for anxiety symptoms. There are a variety of protocols which are done like across the globe at this point, and they're all different. You can have theta burst, which is like three minutes, um, pretty unpleasant, but very effective. When you have the same number of pulses you've got as a part of your RTMS treatment, but within three minutes only. Oh, wow. Which may increase, and that's actually what demonstrated uh, TMRT. This, uh, it has comparable effectiveness to regular RTMS, and it, it it's very cost-effective, right? Because if you think about that you're having three-minute treatment, right. how many people we can treat over the day? Yeah, just to just to provide some background, when I would come in, I would come in and it was about 10, 10 or 15 minutes in, in the chair getting the therapy. And then I would sit for, I think, 30 minutes. Yeah, like a break. And then I would go back in yeah. and do another right. 10 minutes or so. Yeah. So what you're saying in this case is that that 65-minute period could be reduced to three minutes. Yeah, And exactly. you could then see... 20 times the number of people exactly. in theory. And it also will be less of commitment on patients because if you, like, you definitely can relate to that. It requires a lot of commitment. Coming in, sitting in the waiting area, then getting back home. Like, people spend a lot of time, and time is precious. So one of the things you mentioned as well is you mentioned, I don't know if this would be a modality or 
or something bigger, but seizure based versus non seizure based. Yep. So RTMS and TMS is non seizure based. Non-seizure. Mm-hmm. Um, seizure based is where you're put under and you're given uh, relaxant Anas- yeah, and an- um, uh, anesthetic. So you're asleep. You don't feel anything. There's no cuckoo snap anymore um, right. here ever. It's if we compare to any other treatment in psychiatry, that's probably the most safe treatment because it's most modulated and monitored by clinicians. Right. So you have a team of uh, two uh, medical professionals, psychiatrist and anesthesiologist. You have very highly trained ECT nursing staff. Uh, person does not feel anything. It's like a mini surgery. If you go under general anesthetic, you don't feel anything. You wake up, you had your procedure, you will need to lie down for a bit, of course, till you're fully oriented, and then you're free to go home with the escort, of course. Right, yes. Yes, yeah. you need to have escort. But it's not that frightening as a lot of people would picture. Of course, there are downsizes and side effects, as with any treatment, which can and should be minimized with the proper management of ECT. Of course, yeah. And at this point, we do have a, we're testing a different modality of seizure-induced treatment, which is called magnetic seizure therapy, which is same magnetic field as TMS, but just very, very powerful, so it actually induces seizure. And with magnetic seizure therapy, there's no cognitive impairment, so there's no memory loss. You don't lose your memories. And that, unfortunately, has been the biggest downsize of ECT. It's it's about memories, especially when we talk about young people. And I consider myself to be young because I'm 40. So when we talk about young people uh, before 45, um, I think it's very important. A lot of our patients work or they want to get back to work. This is a very huge misconception that, you know, like people go on ODSP, they don't want to do anything. Depression is debilitating condition. It's not a choice. You you can't work. You're physically and mentally unable to get back to work. So being able to offer something which will preserve cognitions and treat depression pretty intensively, I think this is the future of psychiatry. So what brought me initially to brain steel, uh, steam, uh, it's innovation. We, d- you, we don't hear a lot of innovations in uh, psychiatry. We have a lot of in cancer research, like you know, in, uh, in other fields, but not so much in psychiatry. If you think about medication, all you can do, you can change doses. You can add something to medication. With something less like TMS, like brain, brain stimulation, you can change protocol frequencies, durations, targets in the brain, um, and all of them will target different types of symptoms, different types of challenges person is experiencing. Yes, it will require very significant knowledge in uh, neuroscience, and it will require fMRI, something like Dr. Um, like Colin is doing with, the, with STEMRT. So it will require collaboration with neuroscientists to tell us what exactly is that not really working. You may have heard Dr. K mention Colin. That's Dr. Colin Hocko she's referring to. And I had the opportunity to sit with him as well. If you've ever been curious about the other side of a psychiatric trial, Dr. Hocko has all the information you need. Let's go to that interview now.
today I am with Dr. Colin Hocko. Uh, can I call you Colin? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Colin, I see lots of information here. Maybe you can start at the top and tell me what you do here at 250 College Street, Cam the CAMH campus here. So I'm a neuroimaging research scientist here at CAMH, and I work primarily in the field of, of neuroimaging, so taking brain scans of people and looking at the function and structure of their brains and how it relates to psychiatric disorders. So typically I have a number of projects going on simultaneously, which is what's happening right now, and uh, you know, kind of trying to parallel three or four things at the same time. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so three or four different projects you have going on right now. Are you able to tell us sort of the general nature of those product, sure. uh, projects? I've got a nice list on my board, so let's go through okay. the list. So first I have a project looking at neuroimaging and magnetic seizure therapy, which is a very uh, intensive and novel brain stimulation intervention in depression. I mean, magnetic seizure therapy is a new replacement for electroconvulsive therapy, which instead of using electrical stimulation, uses magnetic stimulation, which has the really substantial benefit of uh, a massive reduction in side effects. Oh, wow. So okay. In I, this I, case. Yeah, I've been through uh, ECT before yes. for sure. So is this uh, is this a new, uh, like a brand new type of thing? Is ECT still is trial? the newest kid in the block. It's still not approved for general use yet. It's okay. still under the research phase. We're actually starting up a randomized clinical trial at CAMH with a, a large-scale trial along with uh, some collaborators in the University of Texas Southwestern. Uh, we're with the largest MST-ECT comparison in history. Really? Um, absolutely. And But MST is, 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 I think it started around 2010. The first studies came out. Uh, but it took a while to get it into human use. We've been doing MST in CAMH since around 2010. Um, and it's really, to me, it's the most exciting new intervention in depression, actually, in that we can provide people a treatment that's similar in effectiveness to electroconvulsive therapy, but without the myriad of side effects that people experience afterwards. So I think we'll see MST coming up on board as a major new treatment in depression in the next 10 years or so. Wow. Hopefully less. Hopefully less. Now, would it work um, similar Would it work similar to um, ECT in the sense that the, the patient would be um, sedated? It is procedurally almost identical, actually. The patient wow, goes okay. in, the psychiatrist does their preliminary questions, how are you feeling today, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then they get anesthetized, they are unconscious, they're given anticonvulsants, or I mean, sorry, uh, muscle relaxants, and then they are, they provoke a seizure using magnetic stimulation. The big difference here, though, was instead of electrical stimulation, which shunts throughout the brain, because their brains are bathed in fluid, right? So all the electrical stimulation goes all over the place. MST is very focused. The magnetic stimulation just hits the target that we're hitting, and provokes a more localized, focalized seizure. Um, so you get a lot of the clinical efficacy and a lot of the goodness without a lot of the side effects that come from ECT. Wow, that's, uh, I mean, that's tremendous. Really so that, that, that'll be something potentially that we see, you know, in more widestream, mainstream, wide use in the future. We certainly future. hope so. So in my case, my role in the MST project is where we've uh, done MRI scans for people before and after treatment. And what we want to see is, can we see, firstly, uh, what changes in their brains that relates to re treatment response? So can we see specific brain mechanisms that actually change in those who responded versus those who didn't respond? And then kind of the uh, long-term goal, can we capitalize or you know, better hit those systems? And if you want to go really long-term, if we collect enough imaging data, we want to build predictors. So can I put somebody in the MRI, give them a 30, 40-minute MRI scan, and then say, okay, that person's a candidate for MST, that person's a candidate for ECT, that person's probably not going to benefit from either, the idea here is kind of stop the guesswork and rely on the biology. Oh, my. That is exciting work. It really is exciting. It's yeah. It's really the stuff that's that's getting a lot of us really jazzed up in research right now. I think that we're at, at really like a change point in neuroimaging and, and, and psychi psychiatric research in general. Um, one of the big problems in psychiatry is it's based on these old-fashioned ideas right now of, of sort of like diagnostic categories that came from the 20th century. And those categories are based on presentation. 
oh, you have these symptoms, you must be depressed. You have these symptoms, you have bipolar disorder. But in the rest of medicine, you don't have that kind of just symptom-based diagnosis. If you go to the cardiologist, he doesn't say, oh, your chest hurts. Maybe you're having a heart attack, I guess. I don't know. Take these meds and hope you survive. Right. They put electrodes in your chest and they measure your heart rate and they use that to help base their diagnosis. And they do tests. They do physical tests in your biology. The big push in depression or affects psychiatry in general now is to start doing similar kinds of biologically based assessments. Um, so can we use some kind of something about the patient's individual biology, a person's individual biology to help guide their treatment and understand who will respond to what? Uh, and I think it's really taking off just now, which is really exciting. So thrilled to hear the words, um, you know, like bio- biology, you know, you know, when you're looking uh, in quotes under the hood, you know, you're not necessarily looking for boxes to be ticked but you're actually looking for potential markers or yes things like that um and 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 making a case based on evidence absolutely that's exciting rather than you know sort of a one-size-fits-all solution um just because somebody has the label of depression my version of depression might be different than you know 10 other people exactly it's about personalization so it's not so much let's get one medication let's treat everybody with the same medication it's about okay let's figure out what exactly is going on are we able to do that well to some extent of course not fully will we ever be able to understand how brain works maybe maybe not but we definitely at least moving in the right direction you're seeing more evidence of that than you saw when you started for example absolutely yes yeah, um, evidence at this point, and there is an evidence with ECT at this point only because MST is still investigational, suggests that if person respond, if person responded to ECT, we always recommend to have a maintenance ECT course, which is a slow taper over the six months, weekly by weekly, monthly. Uh, some people complete their maintenance course, they never come back for ECT, they can be perfectly fine. You still probably will need to stay on medications, not your patient. Uh, because th- we see people with treatment-resistant severe depression. So those are not people uh, who had one episode of depression and went directly to ECT. That almost never happens. So if we deal with somebody with treatment-resistant depression, they will need absolutely some sort of maintenance to prevent relapse. And it's CBT medications. Some people will continue with ECT, and we do have a couple of people like that. I, they are coming every five to six weeks, years, because as they said, this is the only treatment which worked in my life, and I don't want to have anything else. Yeah, here, here. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You you come to the end of a end of a line of trying, yeah. you know, many different drugs, yeah. and yes. it does seem, you know, yeah. like really nice to feel good. Yeah, this is not a huge population, though, which actually requires consistent maintenance on on monthly or every five to six weeks. But we do have a couple of those and who had lovely response, very robust response, people who were initially suicidal, like acutely suicidal and nothing worked. So for, for people like that, yes, there are some maintenance which can be provided indefinitely. For MST, for magnetic seizure therapy, there is also maintenance protocol, also slow taper over the six months. How long it's going to take for somebody to relapse after treatment? Again, we need to look into bigger picture of having a severe treatment-resistant condition. The point of treatment is to space out potential relapses as long as possible 
and make next relapse much less severe and intensive than the previous one. So person is able to manage it with something like CBT. Okay, interesting. Right? So you don't have to go on another course. Some people may need to, sure. Some people need to. Now at this point where we're at, um, people are coming to you know these um, these types of therapies uh, when they're drug resistant or you know when they're sort of they've they've hit a wall. Yes. The research that you're doing, however, is it designed to you know maybe someday in the future it would be the first line, like it would be, you know, I I could walk in and 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 be checked out and you know they would know sort of what's wrong with me by looking at mm -hmm. some of the brain imagery mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think you bring in a very very good point um as of now uh with fda and u.s trials t something like tms transcranial brain stimulation is approved for treatment resistant unipolar depression gotcha. so you have to fail at least like two to three medication trials but you're right um we we completed, TMRT completed one youth study with RTMS. There's another one right now is running where there's no expectation that you have to be on medication prior to trial and you can just opt out for RTMS instead of going for medication. And I do believe that it actually, it's a good thing to try. Um, we had very good results for in so-called so medication naive subjects with RTMS in treating their depression. Wow. But again, this is investigational, right? Sure. So this will require a lot of randomized controlled trials to actually prove the concept. At this point, it's about treatment resistance. Right. Can it be effective for non-treatment resistance? Personally, I'm convinced it can. Right, but we're looking at the distant future at this yeah, point. Yeah, but we're looking into more distant future. So uh, w when, when we look at a trial, what what is the timeline of a trial, typically speaking? It depends on a protocol because it also depends on the intensity of the protocol. Okay. If we're treating with a very intensive protocol, several uh, treatments per day, so it has cumulative effect. In this case, it can be somewhere like two to three weeks. If we're treating with more conventional protocol, when there is a less of treatments uh, treatment uh, sessions per day, then we're probably looking into four to six weeks. Okay. And on your end of things, what does a trial look like, like from beginning to end? Like, is that, you know, are we talking like five years or three years? Well, or yeah. So first of all, it's going to depend with uh, ethical. Well, it was writing a protocol because before you're going to write any protocol, you need to realize, like you need to understand what kind of symptoms and most importantly, what kind of neuromarker a biological target you want to explore and then you need to to understand why and how is it related to particular symptomology let's say if we talk about something like bipolar disorder there've been a lot of uh, neuroscientific and fmri data uh, about amygdala and ventrolateral prefrontal cortex and ventromedial prefrontal cortex which is altered and affected in people with bipolar even when they are symptom free Really? So something like TMS can be very, very exciting uh, to explore because if we actually can change and modulate functioning of those two targets in a person with bipolar, we may have very interesting results. Wow. So that the protocol part and protocol part may take a long time. Right. 
then of course it absolutely have to have ethics approval it's very important for any type of research and especially any type of intervention to go through ethics ethics we have to provide ethical treatment right makes sense yeah yes. absolutely and then trials depends on recruitment and then on data analysis and publishing so it can take anywhere between five to seven years wow yeah it's a long process that is yeah so well when we think about what when we think about what you're responsible for i mean seven years seems exactly you know, perfectly yeah. perfectly fine right. right but that's also one of the downsides because when people come and they ask for treatment and they hear oh it's research oh so it's not approved wow no because in order to conduct study you need a lot of resources to be put in into this study and then you need a lot of other things happen for this treatment to be approved but it doesn't mean that treatment is unknown right it's just not known on the position of uh, being approved by ministry at this point gotcha right i'm not going to be able to go get a prescription yes or something e like exactly. that exactly yeah so but nevertheless when i go through the trial there there potentially will be therapeutic benefits. Of course. Okay, this is pretty exciting stuff. What Dr. K and Dr. Hako are saying here is that we're being afforded an opportunity to look through a pair of binoculars into the future, and we're not even having to tighten the focus. This is really super cool. I'm excited about this, and so is Dr. Hako. I'm going to give him the last word. I think we're at a change point now. We used to do studies tending to have small populations of 20 people and 20 controls and 20 patients and do these kind of comparisons and very simple statistics and methods. And we learned a lot, but it never translated. But the thing that's happened now is what we call big data. Suddenly, it's not just me running one study with 20 people. We're starting to all get together and say, okay, this is good enough. Let's start scanning 300 people at a time. Another thing that's happening is that everybody's starting to share their data. So if I go and collect 100 scans, I'm not going to keep them to myself. I'm going to post them on an online repository, and other researchers can download that data and work on it and uh, start building their own larger databases. This has been a thing that's really jump-started a lot of amazing and incredible science. In the, pa in the past, were, were hospitals and facilities much more like um, proprietary, like they wanted to hold on to their own? Proprietary is the right word, but a lot more closed in. Closed uh, in people sure. just weren't sharing their, their data. They kind of viewed it as their own, which is obviously wrong. I mean, I didn't pay for those scans. A granting agency paid for those scans, usually a, you know, a national granting agency or you know, maybe a private foundation. And that data doesn't belong to me. It shouldn't be viewed as belonging to me. I might have put the work in to collect the data and find the people and, and run the scans or whatever it was, but that data is, should be out there for us all to share. And so there's been a real change in people's perspective on this. We tend to have what we call an embargo period. So I'll maintain control of my own data for a certain period of time while I do my primary research. And then once that I've kind of finished with it, we just put it out there and we share it with everybody else. And that's in the hopes that somebody else will see it and be able to maybe continue what you were doing or even come up with something completely different? It's even more than that. It's, it's more the idea that they'll take my data plus someone else's data plus someone else's data. And then suddenly they're building big databases and big data sets. Um, and in fact, there's some very big initiatives in this. So for example, there's the Enigma Initiative, which has collected... Uh, I think nearly 3,000 people with depression with, with MRI data and combine them all into one big database, start doing some really amazing research on this really giant database. Um, and it's changing how things work a lot in the world of science and this sort of stuff we can understand about, about people's brains. So when you compare that to, uh, you know, even, even 10 years ago, sample sizes were 
15, 20, you're saying? Yeah, 30 would have been a big study. If I had 30 and 30 in two groups, that would have been a big study. And now you potentially have upwards of upwards thousands, of in, some, thousands. in some cases. Now, sometimes okay. you have to fall back on the old methods. Sure. And if you're studying something very specific, well, I can only get 30 and 30, and that's what it is. Right. But things are changing, and they're changing fast. Colin, I want to I want to focus a little bit on um, some of the tasks sure. and some of the things that people go through when they are in the MRI. Can you talk a little bit about wh- why I went through twice? You know, once at the beginning and once at the end, and, sure. and what sorts of things so you're looking for there? The beginning and end thing—that's what we call a pre-post design. A very typical design in clinical intervention trials, and it's because what we really want to see is what changes during the treatment, right? So we put somebody through a treatment, we do some stuff, and we hope some brain circuit has been modified in some way by the treatment. So they do this pre-post design to say, okay, we have our baseline measurement where somebody was you know, acutely ill, and then they come out of the treatment, either they're still ill or they're not ill and they got better, and we see, well, what changed, particularly in those who got better? So let's say we find that you know some specific brain circuit in the frontal cortex improved in those who got better, and then it raises the question, can we better target that system? Can we do something in our treatment that will better hit that or tap into that or whatever it is and kind of maximize output and efficacy? Okay. So again, going back to your sort of um, uh, the cardiac analog absolutely you know if 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 you did a um oh gosh what are they called again now where you get the probes attached to um shoot i forget what it's called ekg Ah, ekg yeah if you get an ekg done and then you do you spend weeks doing cardio or something Mm -hmm. like that and then you do one at the end um, absolutely you'd expect to see a change in people's heart rate measurements uh etc so that if so it would be something similar Similar to that we want to kind of measure you know like how can we measure brain changes with the treatment outcome um, both kind of as in, in the, the sort of like the pure scientific interest in understanding mechanisms of, of depression or other disorders. And there's also the how can we you know target better the things that get better and people who aren't getting better. And then the, the end game, the predictive modeling, right? How do we really predict who's going to respond to what treatment and sort of save people from weeks and weeks of unsuccessful treatment and shunt them into the right treatment at the beginning rather than the current system, which is largely guesswork. You are so passionate and uh, I'm so grateful for your time today. It's Thank you so much. Uh, I just want to wrap this up with with one thing. If there was um, one or two things that you would want an audience um, like mine to 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 get um, about CAMH, what would that be? Let's say less about CAMH and more about psychiatry. Okay, perfect. Um, the thing I would like people to get is that psychiatric disorders are biological disorders. We treat people with psychiatric problems a lot different than we treat people with other problems. I've had some you know, physical health problems. I had kidney disease when I was younger. I had to have a kidney transplant. Nobody said to me, oh, why don't you just go pee more? Right? That's stupid. But then when somebody has severe depression, we say, well, why don't you just get out of bed and stop being so whiny? When somebody has schizophrenia, we just call them crazy. And that's a travesty. We should never do that. That's not, it's not okay. These are not, you know, oh, you're just a wimp or a weakling or there's just something, you know, you're just off. It's these are biological problems they need to be treated like that and we need to treat them from a medical perspective obviously like that but we need to treat them from a social perspective like that too you know nobody like oh you have cancer well that's tough luck just get over it just i don't know go move around some more or something or think happy thoughts like we put people through intense therapies to get better targeted therapies nobody says that somebody with a severe physical illness is you know weak or deficient or anything like that we need to treat people with psychiatric disorders the same way it's a biological problem. They have biological causes and biological cures. And that's something we need to appreciate. And in fact, one of my personal professional goals right now is to uh, 
really push for that, bring the neuroscience into the clinic phenomena. It's not enough for us to understand mechanisms of psychiatric disorders or whatever we're studying. I really want to push to reach that point where I put someone in the MRI, we tell our computer to do some processing, and then we say to the psychiatrist, the systems are disrupted in that person. These are the things we need to help target to get them better. And do that transdiagnostically. Don't walk up and say, they have depression. Say, no, no, they have a disruption in these brain systems. And that's the thing you need to target. Forget the label. Target the, dis the disorder, not the description. And it's nice to work in a place where that's kind of grounded in the real world and where things that kind of try to matter and, you know, feel like, yeah, maybe some of the stuff that I do will have real impact on people's lives in the end. Um, and if only incrementally, that's still something, right? So there you have it. Those are the conversations that I was fortunate enough to have with Dr. Yulia Nienichka, Dr. K, and Dr. Colin Hako late last year at the Temerty Center for Therapeutic Brain Intervention. I really want to express my thanks to the Temerty Center, to Cam H, and to Karen Cleveland for making these conversations possible. I'm very curious to see what tomorrow brings. Imagine a world where we can be treated with minimal side effects, with cognitive behavioral therapy, medicine, and brain stimulation. We could truly, truly get a leg up on this awful disease, mental illness. In the meantime, be well and stay safe. A show of strength is a movement where I try to encourage courage. You can find out more by visiting www.ashowofstrength.com. You can subscribe, rate, and review A Show of Strength at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet me at A Show of Strength or send me an email at a show of strength at iCloud.com.